Okay, y'all. This this is it. This is happening. Uh, this is our 50th episode. I can't believe it that we have our 50th episode out. So thank you for joining me on this nerd venture. Thank you for joining Erin on this fabulous ride and roller coaster that has been her clinical fellow year because whoop, whoop, girl is almost done and we want to give back. So for this 50th episode, we're excited to announce that uh, the cortical vision impairment with the one and only Dr. Carol Page will be 50% off. So it's getting marked down to $12.99 and uh, you get to geek out and listen to Dr. Carol, and that's that's awesome. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for the last 50 episodes. And um, we definitely have at least another 50. We, we're kind of planned all the way out to the end of the year, and it's only June. So whoop, whoop. happy National Dysphagia Awareness Month, and uh, thanks for joining us. This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. 
I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Colatown, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP here again with the lovely Dr. Carol Page, PhD, CCC, SLP, ATP, and CPIS, because she has all the things. The topic of today falls in the functional category, and we're talking all things cortical vision impairment and AAC with one of the most amazing women I've had the pleasure of meeting in my Palmetto State, Dr. Carol Page. It's you, lady. You make my heart and soul joyful. And you mentor me like every time. So I'm grateful for that. Um, so welcome back. And in case y'all missed Hey, Michelle. Hey. <laughs> um, and in case you missed her, Dr. Carol was featured in episode 24. AAC is more than Velcro. Say what? Back last fall. And she was amazing. In this episode, Dr. Carol shares guidelines for best practice as it pertains to AAC, such as the fact that core vocabulary is one of the most important aspects of what we do when working with our patients, as well as evidence behind utilization of speech generating devices. Well, somewhere along that topic line, we sort of went off chasing some squirrels, and that led us to this episode, cortical vision impairments. Huzzah! All right, so let me be honest. Several years ago, there was an article in the ASHA Leader about how we should consider eye gaze options for those that have been diagnosed with a cortical vision impairment, CVI, and it blew my mind. What we can do, I thought, we can, we can't do that, but we can. And, and I was wrong on this. I did not think that using an eye gaze option was viable for a child that had a cortical vision impairment or even a vision impairment. And I was so wrong. So I called Dr. Carol and she gave me some advice, profound as always. Michelle, you're not teaching them what you want or think they should say. You're teaching that child how to say what they want to say. And in that same light and in that same vein, you don't know what they can do or not do until you've tried it. So don't assume they can't until they have proven through trials that they can't. Mind blown. So, Dr. Carol, I'm all ears, ma'am, to have more wisdom poured in. Share, please. How are you doing? How's the South Carolina Assistive Technology Office doing? Tell me all the things. 
<laughs> oh, it's great to be with you, Michelle, and and with everybody else. Um, the South Carolina Assistive Technology Program, we're winding down our training programs for the year. Um, be Feel free to check our website for what trainings are coming up. Also, we got a um, big shipment in today of pediatric uh, wheelchairs and standers and all kinds of pediatric equipment. And if you want to be on our listserv to find out more about this equipment that we get in and then give away for free, please um, get in touch with us at the South Carolina Assistive Technology Program, and we'll make sure you get connected to this equipment. Oh, that's fantastic. And and like we said in the last episode, the tail end of the last episode, if you are working with a patient that has outgrown older equipment, whether it be... Um, a communication device or, you know, a stander or something of that nature, they will refurbish it. So you can donate gently used equipment and they will refurbish it and make sure it finds a good home too. So absolutely. There's a lot that happens. Okay. Yes. Yay. Needless to say, I'm a huge fan of the South Carolina Assistive Technology Office. Hint, hint. There I am. South Carolina Technology Office. We do all kinds of things with assistive technology. So, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, in our last pod course, we talked about the utilization of core vocab and AAC. But this time around, we're focusing on cortical vision impairment and access to AAC. So, on that note... Can you please describe what a CVI is and some tips for the treating therapist to watch out for, especially if there isn't an official diagnosis yet? Yes. Um, Happy to do that. It's basically cortical visual impairment is basically a condition when a child is visually unresponsive, but has a normal eye exam which is a little hard to think about how that works. So the brain is unable to process the visual information sent to it from the eyes itself. So that means the breakdown is in the occipital lobe, um, or some people know it as the visual cortex. Um, All right. So I've shared in the past about my brother-in-law, but he was my first experience as uh, a clinician working with an individual or being related to or knowing an individual that had a CVI. He had a typical pregnancy and his eyes are healthy and fine, but something happened in the second or third trimester and a virus attacked my mother-in-law during the pregnancy. And it looks like a rat gnawed on his optic nerve and part of his occipital lobe. And so he's microcephalic and has a cortical vision impairment due to a virus, not a genetic syndrome, not a stroke, not a traumatic brain injury. It was a virus. And so very interesting. It, it, um, yes, his, um, it, it is very much so. Um, it, the microcephaly that ensued actually looks, um, his craniofacial structure looks akin to what a child with Zika looks like. Um, but um, also he's the most joyful and has the best Power Rangers collection you've ever seen because he's been collecting Power Rangers since they came out like 20 some 30 years ago. But um, that's just like one example. But 
if a clinician's never seen a kid with a cortical vision impairment, and I'm thinking we sometimes get them out of the NICU or, you know, they're noticing like poor engagement. What are some of those behaviors or patterns that they should look for when they're working with the kid? One of the things they can do just to take one step back is to um, have medical conditions kind of earmarked um, that when you see them, you know to start thinking that perhaps cortical visual impairment is part of it. So one is uh, periventricular leukomalacia, and that's just where the fluid-filled ventricles in the brain um, start to have um, breakdown. Actually, it's they say it's holes. um, in those areas, and it affects the white matter in the brain. It can also be caused by asphyxia, hypoxia, and ischemic encephalopathy, cortical um, uh, CVAs, intraventricular hemorrhages, infections, structural abnormalities, and then also trauma, like traumatic brain injury. Yeah, that's where we think of... Um a lot of times non-accidental trauma, also in layman's terms, shaken baby. Yeah. And so um, there's really three things that kind of can tip you off that this is going on. One is that they have a normal eye exam. They have a medical history that includes a neurological problem like we just talked about. Um, and then there's the presence of unique vision, vision and um, behavioral characteristics. And we'll talk more about those as we go along. Um, one of the things, uh, if you want to find out a lot of great information, uh, Dr. Roman Lancy has written a book called Cortical Visual Impairment, The Everyday Impact on People Who Use AAC. That would be like my go-to Bible. In fact, I have it. I've read it. It, it is amazing. What is, it? Um, what is it called one more time? A cort- it's called Cortical Visual Impairment. The Everyday Impact on People Who Use AAC. Okay. Everyday Impact. I'm totally adding this to my Amazon wish list while we're talking. There there you go. And then also Linda Burkhart, who's um, kind of a famous SLP. She's famous in my book. Um, She does a lot of consulting work. Uh, On her website, she has partner-assisted communication strategies for children with cortical visual impairment. So you can Google Linda Burkhart and CVI, and you will find partner-assisted communication strategies. Okay. Linda Burkhart. Okay. Um, Yeah. Is she the one out of um, University of New Mexico? No. I do not know that. I th- She, as far as I know, just works on a consultative basis, but she goes all over the world. She's Oregon. Yep. There okay. you go. Yep. And I, okay. I'm thinking of someone else that's up. Somebody listening is like, no, you're thinking of so and so. There you go. Okay. And it all also right, are, applies okay. as far as speech language pathologists are concerned. It also applies to feeding because we want to make sure the utensil is high contrast with the food, um, that the background to our food is high contrast and plain. Um, it also uh, applies to SLP services as far as literacy goes, because we would want to block out unneeded detail on the page. We would use large print. We can use markers to highlight key features of letters or pictures. Um, 
We can teach these kids to uh, go from left to right. Um, some people know about using page fluffers. And also, it's a great place to start if you use books with repeated lines. So um, that just helps with predictability. And what um, a page fluffer? A page fluffer is you put something on the corner of the page just so it oh. makes a gap in between each page. Yes. Okay. I've done that. I've cut yeah. up sponges and glued them in. And um, I have, I liked, you have an example in your um, clinic there of like the old fashioned hair scrunchies. Yep. The little bitty ones. Yep. And I've done that. Yes. Yep. And then if you want to read more about literacy and CVI, um, there's a wonderful book by Diane Sheline, and it's S-H-E-L-I-N-E, and it's called Literacy for Children with CVI, okay. a really good resource. Literacy for Children with CVI, Okay. So those are the right. three areas that involve speech-language pathologists, AAC, feeding, and literacy. Yeah, it does. You just covered our entire um, scope with, like, one breath. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you, you recommended some colors, though, the colors that they would high contrast. Can you explain what contrast colors we should be looking for? Well, um, what I'd like to do is uh, first talk about that there's three phases to CVI and how it develops. And so phase one um, is when the child is building visual behaviors and we're actually working on getting the child to look at specific things. So getting them to scan and look. And then phase two is integrating vision with function. And we'll talk about that some more. And then um, phase three is kind of like they're doing really well and we're just resolving any um, residual CVI characteristics that are still lingering. But there's um, there's 10 different uh, accommodations and um, that affect the therapy that we do. And so um, I'd like to go over those and talk about what the child is doing and then what therapy we can do um, to help with that and bring out better um, eye gaze, eyesight. Perfect. I'll, yes, go. So I'm, the I'm first one, okay. <laughs> um, the first one is light gazing and non-purposeful gaze. And I've had mothers hold children in their arms and the child is just glue glued to the lights in the ceiling. That's all they want to look at. And no matter how mom repositions and all that, their face continues to look at the lights. Um, so in therapy, if, you, if the child you're working with does that, you want to position the lights behind the child. And and in fact, you want to use lamps instead of lights in the ceiling. So sometimes we, we work in a room with a lot of windows and we'll turn off the overhead lights and just use the light coming in from the windows sometimes. I'm thinking clinics, you have to turn that fluorescent lighting overhead off. Yes. Um, I mean, we, we all know that 
that light in and of itself can cause damage and issues for our children with autism spectrum disorders, but there's plenty of filters that folks can put in up there. Yeah. So in therapy, we want to use, so for these kind of kids, we want to use lighted objects. So these are the objects we're going to actually be using in therapy. We want them to light up so we can draw the attention to something meaningful and practical instead of gazing at the lights in the ceiling, which aren't going to really help the child grow in any way. Um, There's lots of apps at this stage that help with this kind of behavior. Um, I don't, uh, we have most of these on our iPads that we loan out. If you're, if you want to borrow one of our iPads with these uh, apps, there are things like tap and see now, big bang pictures, big bang patterns, crazy gears, um, Fluidity, I use that one a lot. I love fireworks. Peeping musicians, the kids love that. Cause and effect sensory light box. And then um, cause and effect sensory sound box. And then there's one called baby look tickle. That's fun. Baby look tickle? Yeah. That's precious. Yeah. So, Michelle, you're right. There are color preferences. And when I'm working with parents, I'll often say, uh, what is their favorite toy? Because that often gives away what their favorite color preference is. And it's often red and yellow. Um, but And you actually want to use red and yellow if no one's quite sure what the color preference is. Um, but you do want to leave the door open to try different colors to see if one works better than another. But parents will say things like, no, they don't have a favorite color, but they just want Big Bird or they just want the school bus. And that lets me know they're, they do better with yellow than other colors. Or they'll say they want the Elmo or the fire engine. So that lets me know they basically use red. So sometimes we can just figure out what the what the favorite color is by what toy they use the most. So when you're doing therapy, you can use a red feeding spoon. Um, You can also, um, or yellow or whatever their favorite color is. You can also use a magic marker using their favorite color to highlight um, information in the books you're reading. And then also like, um, you know, the area they're supposed to work um, at at a table or the area around their cubby, you know, like the uh, the walls of their cubby or something like that, you can use that color tape that seems to draw their attention. And with the color tape, you would just highlight what you want them to attend to geographically. And uh, often that's a that's a big help. Um. For the feeding kiddos, just a couple quick thoughts that I've had work really well. Red co-band around the rim of a bottle, it alerts the kid to seeing the bottle and then they don't have the startle reflex when a wet, cold nipple is shoved in their face or a wet, warm nipple is shoved in their face. Um, And for my feeding kiddos, I try to keep my fingernails bright, bold red. And when I'm holding on to the bottle, it gives them a heads up that it's coming or um, changing the color of the silverware that she mentioned earlier. Um, Also, I have a kiddo who loves Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse is red, black, white, and then he's got those yellow dots on his shorts. And so if you've got a kiddo out there that is in love with Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and wants to play with those toys, 
for me that I've started using that as a, you know, oh, we're going to watch this. That's, that's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. Those, those are all awesome ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I love all those. Fingernail polish. Sorry, I've tried to get fingernail polish to tax write off or manicures, and it's not. My tax man said no. And I'm like, but I, but I <laughs> good try. Good try. <laughs> Sorry, continue. I'll be quiet now. Another um, aspect that you want to think about is latency. And that's basically the time it takes to attend to new objects or a person or um, something that's in the environment. And while we're waiting for the child to respond to what we want them to be looking at, it might feel like it's taking them a really long time. But it's so important to let the kids have all the time they need to orient. So um, that's our biggest job there. Um, so we need them to do that and orient to an object so that we can um, start teaching joint attention and turn-taking skills. So that's like the precursor to more sophisticated skills we'll be working on later on. And then Visual novelty is another aspect to consider, and children with CVI prefer familiar objects over non-familiar objects, So, which is usually a little bit different than most of the other kids, you know, love to see what new toy is going to come out of that bag or that box. Um, not so with kids with CVI. They definitely like their familiar toys. So we really want to find out from the parents or maybe other therapists what their favorite toys are. Um, and then find out what's the most motivating component of that. So like with the Mickey Mouse, if they're all about those yellow buttons, then when we do introduce a new toy, we want to make sure that new toy has yellow buttons on it too, which we might actually have to hand sew on there or, um, you know, that the toy would have something yellow and pronounced on it. So we want to carry that over to non-familiar things. So that helps too. And then the need for movement. And this, this is interesting because um, we all know that movement alerts the brain. And um, so some kids will actually move their body so that the object will move. Um, so if we can make the object move, it will help the child attend to what we want them to do. Oh my God, you just answered several questions that I've had about a kiddo. There you go. Okay. So not just okay. movement, but um, a friend of mine um, is big on adding sparkly things or shiny things to objects while they're moving. So not only do they move, but they sparkle and shine. And so sometimes she'll just put like a mylar balloon, a piece of mylar balloon behind it, and she'll crinkle it. And so she'll crinkle that mylar balloon while she's holding the object and it makes a noise and it sparkles and it's a very cheap way of doing it. Um, so, and you can also buy mylar tape um, to create those borders around work and play areas like we talked about earlier. We had to do that as a family. My mother-in-law came home from work one day. She just retired as a special ed teacher to find my brother-in-law sitting on the front porch with all three dogs. And he goes, Mama, I got to see the fire trucks. And she goes, oh, did you now? 
he had missed because he'd come home from his day program and he had missed. Um, he always has his afternoon popcorn, but he accidentally hit the potato button on the microwave oh, no. instead of the popcorn button and calamity ensued. And, you know, Uncle Matthew, as he calls it, he has the tism. So he was sitting outside relaying his version of the series of events and how the firemen were all very helpful and <laughs> so forth. And, <laughs> and now they make mylar red stickers in the shapes of stars and hearts and and circles. And it's a sticker. So the microwave for a brief period of time until the sticker fell off had a mylar red glitter sticker over the popcorn button so that they didn't explode another popcorn. I think that's an awesome so, idea. That's I got it from one of your lectures. You said that several years ago. <laughs> and this was, I suppose, what am I going to do? Because I cannot keep affording new microwaves. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it works, folks. Get yourself some Mylar stickers. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah. Um, one more thing that you need to look at is visual field preferences. So kids with CVI definitely have visual field preferences. And this is one thing that I really had to change about what I was doing. For instance, we want to find out, do they have a left field preference or a right field preference at the very minimum? And so when we hold things in front of these kids, we have to make sure they're not at midline. And I'm famous for holding things at midline. So it's really important to find out what field preference they have and hold the object in that field, but not in midline. So instead of repositioning the child, you just want to move the toys or the objects in their visual field of preference. You don't have to move the child every time. We, we're going to move us. I've heard, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that called the null point, finding their null There you point. go. And I've had I've had some children that have Down syndrome that have nystagmus with their eyes. So they're the um, rapid fire iterations of um, like, um, like pulsing back and forth. Um, I'm trying to visually model this with jazz hand while I work through my anomia. Um, just putting that all together in a picture for y'all. Uh, and I have found that if you hold it to the left or the right, but up, they naturally will tuck their chin down to look up. And, um, and that seems to help. I don't know what that does for the nystagmus, but if I see a kiddo that has nystagmus and I'm anticipating a CVI as well, something for me about holding it off to the side and up seems to help as well. So, yeah. And the next thing I want to talk about really impacts all things AAC, and that is decreased visual complexity. And nothing like AAC to, to start having very cluttered boards, whether it's, you know, a piece of paper or on a, a communication device, things get very cluttered very quickly. Um, so, Kids with CVI do better at orientation and attention um, when there's less clutter, uh, less um, complexity. And so we want to provide line drawings when we can and also provide single color drawings. So 
unfortunately, when we're using apps, it's every color in the book is in those apps. They're all those, you know, primary colors and they're bright and kind of confusing. Uh, we also want to place these pictures against a plain background. And a lot of people use black. You don't have to use black, but I sort of lean towards that because it kind of just fades into nothingness and we want that communication picture to stand out. And with some apps, you absolutely can put space around the um, communication pictures and then pick the color for that background color. So you can definitely do that in Proloquo2Go. Go. You can do it in LAMP and um, I I know those two for sure. I'd have to think about the other ones, but um, so we do have some control over that. Um, I just did it then, with Go Talk Now Light. Oh Three. yes, Go Talk Now. Yeah. Yes, I yes. did that for a field of two for a little one that I'm working with that has wolf hirsch horns, and we're functioning at like a eight month old level but we're like two and a half. So we just, we just started embedding that with a good old fashioned of chasing an older sister around and squealing at the top of our lungs and joy. (laughs) So go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the other thing that go talk now does that's so good for kids with CVI is that you can, you can tell it specifically what color border Mm -hmm. to put around each picture. And then you can make it really fat. I mean, fat, like none of the other apps change. Yeah. Okay. So I've done some where it's just like this big, thick, black, I mean, red, bright border around the communication picture. And um, that's been really effective. Oh, okay. You just gave me more work to do on Tuesday, man. (laughs) There you go. And so not only do we have to be concerned about visual complexity, but also they found that they do better in quieter environments. So it's also auditory um, auditory complexity as well. So we need to make sure we have quiet environments when we're working with kids with CVI. And then um, we also have to worry about touching too much. Um, so we should limit touching and limit hand over hand prompting. We want them to figure all this out. Um, so, so we just want to cut down on, you know, kind of uh, visual information, uh, touch information and auditory information. Mm-hmm. So they can go into sensory overload pretty quickly. Yeah. I have witnessed that on numerous occasions. I also find myself when I'm doing augmentative and alternative communication, providing fewer symbols just so, you know, the line drawing is more pronounced. And um, when you look at Linda Burkhardt's stuff, you'll see she, she does this thing with a, a sheet of paper where she puts nine pictures on it, but then she folds it into thirds so that she's only showing three pictures at a time. And then, um, Anyhow, so she she does that too. She's always reducing the amount of information we're putting in front of children. And then we got to keep those things moving and add motion to it. And then the other thing that they'll do is they'll, they'll look and then stop looking, look away, and then they'll reach for the object, which is 
you know, like we're so used to where well, they're not even looking at it and they're reaching for it. So that just, it, it seems like it's disconnected, but um, really they know what they're doing. They, they can't look and reach towards a point at the same time. And so that all comes with practice and over time, but initially that's a really hard thing for them to do. You just, I, I need to bring a kid to you. <laughs> so it's important. Don't require eye contact. Um, so if you're putting a communication board in front of a child and they're touching one of the pictures, do not require them to look at the picture that they touch um, because it might just be too hard for them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's taught a lot with the lamp methodology when I've gone to the, um, their trainings. They, they focus on that too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a different way of thinking about it because we are all kind of trained to, to really pay attention to what these kids are looking at. So this is saying kind of disregard what they're looking at, pay attention to what they're touching. So, and then the last one is um, that I wanted to talk about today is distance. And um, we need to find out what the child's visual range is. And this is really important because for some kids, it's like right at the end of their nose. And for other kids, it's on their lap and other kids were three feet away. So wherever that point is, that's where we need to put objects. That's where we need to put communication systems. And that's where we're going to get the most progress. So um, that all happens with trial and error. Um, Parents are going to be really good about providing input about that. And um, once you figure that out, it's really going to help a lot. Yeah. I'm just thinking, especially for academic purposes, not just, I mean, the, exactly. I think this connect between the world of EI when it rolls from early intervention to the schools, we go, for some reason, what I see is we go from working on gaining functional communication to now they have to tie it into academics. But a lot of these kiddos that we're working with are still just learning functional communication. And, and I know that IEPs are written different than IFSPs, but um, there ne- we need to do a better blend of that. But if you have that knowledge beforehand, then they know where to you know place all the equipment when the um, homebound teachers come in. Okay, absolutely. And we're used to bringing a child into the like the therapy room and having them scope out what's on the table and what's up on the shelves, and every every aspect of this has a different distance from the child. So they might just notice what's on the edge of the table and not even look beyond that to see what else is on the table or even what's on the shelves where we just automatically assume all that's being taken in. So it's a, it's a different way of thinking about that. Also, cortical visual impairment really goes undiagnosed. Um, do you find that too, Michelle? I, um, CDI's Yes, all the time, especially with my um, uh, perinatal strokes or my, um, you know, that they have a, a hemorrhage right at birth. And so I get them home, um, you know, I get, get the discharge records from the NICU and I talk to a bunch of NICU therapists about this and they are all equally frustrated because they will know something's not right 
or the NICU OT that's doing feeding will know something's not right based off of like startle reflux. Like every single feed starts with a startle reflux. And they're like, they can't see it coming, but their hands are tied. The neonatologist is worried about like, you know, just getting the kid to a certain weight and then getting them out the door. And they say the home physicians, they're the child's PCP and the child's home health team will be responsible for it. But the catch is this is not taught in grad school. I did not learn anything about a cortical vision impairment or vision in general impacting functional communication. I mean, I had an AAC class a million years ago when it was just starting to be part of like core curriculum. Like you had to have an AAC class in order to graduate and taught by the most wonderful woman. And she goes, y'all, this is huge that we're having this class. And at the time, like completely over my head, but CVI was not addressed. And so, and then you can't, what I have found is that unfortunately a lot of these children, especially in rural settings, the only local eye doctor is the one um, that's been there for a very long time. And they may not be aware of or be as proactive with medically complex children or be, be in tune to pick out a CVI. And it requires getting them to a, um, what I have found is a neuro-ophthalmologist. Is it neuro-ophthalmologist or neuro-optometrist? If they got the word neuro in front of it, that's what I'm looking for. Get them to the Op- brain eye doctor. And yes. The yes. Op- yeah. Ophthalmologist. Yes. yes. But that's, you know, it's the brain eye doctor. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes there's one nowhere available. Yeah. Um, or there's a wait list of like six months. Yeah. 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 But I'm usually the person, um, and, and this covers a wide range of ages that they bring in the child for one thing. And I'm watching how the child's reacting to everything. And I'm going, you know, I'm asking, is this child been diagnosed with CVI? Parents have never heard of it. But you know, when we started out talking about those neurological conditions that could be markers for, you know, having CVI as well, um, you know, those neurological markers are definitely there. The behaviors are definitely there. And the parents absolutely have never heard of it, don't even know that's something they're supposed to be monitoring for and things like that. So, um, very frustrating. So, I might and uh, I think it's okay for SLPs to get that conversation started to say, I can't diagnose, but what I can do is say things are starting to add up and I am recommending that you get it checked out further. Because once we have it identified, we know how to respond to it. We know yes. how to do therapy then. Yes. And folks, just so you all know, it is within our scope of practice to make referral request. So that is within your wheelhouse to say, I see these signs and symptoms. Can we please make referrals here? And I put that in my initial eval and in my plan of cares, every 90 day plan of care until a referral gets through. I mean, it may be for the duration that I treat the child because I'm, you know, the physician may disagree with my recommendations. Absolutely 110%, but I still will leave it in there if my gut says we need to do more. So, yes. Okay. All right. So when, all right, we covered a lot there. (laughs) 
We sure did in a little bit of time. I try to be organized. But, I mean, well, that's good because the world knows I'm not. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So when you're doing the eval and you, you have hit on some of this, what are specific considerations? Like say you, you know, you, you on the event that you get a child's past medical history before you see the kiddo and you anticipate that there's a risk for a CVI. What are some specific considerations when doing an eval for an assistive communication device, an AAC device? Oh, yeah, I definitely take all this information um, in and make sure that I am uh, accommodating wherever the child is with it. Um, you know, for instance, if they're in phase one, we just want them to attend. I mean, our goal is going to, will they attend to an object to request it? Um, that would be a major, you know, thing for the child to be working on. Um, but phase two, integrating vision with function, now we might have two or three pictures available. Um, we're using pictures instead of objects. We still could be using objects, but um, we're doing more discrimination between one and another thing. And then um, phase three, we're just um, perhaps adding more pictures to the field, um, not having to move things anymore for them to attend to them. Now they're able to uh, point or touch to a picture while keeping their uh, attention forward. So we kind of need to see where are they in this, because it, it resolves over time. But it does um, require you know, for us to be including these best practices um, while we're working with the kids so that it will resolve. Um, so it's really important that we just don't um, reinforce the behaviors that don't work. Uh, we want to guide them into new behaviors that really help them with their vision. And there is a formal test, not a, well, it's it's in the book. You were asking about testing for this. We're we're not the SLPs are not the ones to be testing for this, but there is actually a test. Oh, and I wanted to talk about we were talk I left something out and uh we were talking about the complexity of the um the icons that we use, you know, with uh pictures, you know, but photographs are going to be really tough for these kids because they're so nuanced and we want to give things that are just very two dimensional. Um, whereas photographs try to show, you know, things in 3d, um, you know, that it shows perspective and things like that can be really hard for these kiddos. So, um, you know, it's, honestly better to have line drawings than to have a photograph of something for these kids. But if you do choose to use a photograph, make sure you have that plain background and just the object in the front and keep it very, very simple. Um, so that's, that's what I would do. But um, the other thing people say, well, where do I find line drawings? Um, I go on Google and type in, like if I'm looking for a line drawing of a house, and I'll type in house, 
black and white line drawing. I'll type in all those words and then go to images and there I've got plenty to choose from. And you so can, if and you, folks, you can download these and then save it and then upload them um, on like the tablet and on most yep. devices. So yep. it, it may take a little bit longer. And from a, I know people, I have talked to folks that get stressed out about the programming piece. There's actually CPT codes available and different states have different rules so that you can be reimbursed for your time in programming a patient's communication device. So check with the CMS handbook for your individual state because, you know, I've heard that from, you know, clinicians before. Well, it takes so much time to program these things and I don't get paid for it, but then I can't bill for therapy when I'm working with the kid and blah, 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 blah. There's get, um, check out the ASHA super bill and it tells you the CPT code because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I do know that it is on the ASHA super bill. Um, so Yeah. Also, there's a really good book, and I cannot remember the for the life of me, but there's it's a series about three little mice, and it's all primary colors and line drawings and on black and white. And it is it goes through numbers, letters, and little narrative storytelling. Um, and I have a kiddo that has CVI and he will engage with only that book series out of every other book we tried only that book series because of what you just said, white solid background. And it's not a photographic imagery. So hmm. um, it, I will wake up at three o'clock tomorrow morning with the name of that book. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Add it to your website. Yes, it will. The the other thing that you can do, I just thought of something else I've done before that seems to work, is that you can have like a little flashlight. So to add a highlight to a picture. So if you have like low-tech pictures on a black background, say, um, you can take the flashlight and point it individually to one picture after another to encourage choice making. Hmm. So that's a great idea too. It's just to add light to each individual option. Um, one thought that I've got is um, we have through the South Carolina school for the deaf and the blind, they have some vision trainers and there's an excellent one in the Midlands, um, Susan Anepo. And she is, oh, yeah. just, I mean, Oh my goodness, girl can shoot a double barrel shotgun like it's nobody's business and um, carry a tune. And she's got just grace and sass and wit. But when I know that a kiddo is getting services with that particular um, service coordination company, and I know she's on the team, I will try to schedule an eval or a co-treatment or something with the vision trainer through the deaf and blind school because when I walk in, she already knows what works for this kid. Oh, wow. And it's like, it's awesome. I mean, it takes out so much guesswork because, you know, she's been there typically weeks or months before I can get in the door. Um, so if you have a kiddo and you're working with them through your local um, deaf and blind school and they have a vision trainer, seek them out and get their guidance, utilize that interprofessional practice with that colleague, because they can give you so many profound strategies. Um, that's the first place I saw a light box. I was with Susan. I had never mm. seen a light box before. Um, yes. And those are fun. 
Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had my own and my dad made two of them. I had both of them and I've actually given them away to therapists to use. So, um, awesome. but they, they are really good for putting, um, items on um so the background is actually light and then the objects are a little bit darker Mm -hmm. so that's a different way of doing it Mm -hmm. okay all right so i'm i'm looking at our time and i think we've got time to fit in two more questions because i think we've got about 15 more minutes if math is correct um so in that we we opened with that article it's dated folks that have a CVI should still be assessed for high tech eye gaze speech generating devices. And, but the why, can you explain the why to, to everybody out there? Because that, when I read that in the ASHA leader was just like, no, <laughs> and that was wrong, but tell us why. <laughs> yeah. So um, they still um, score as having a regular vision Um so they have normal eye exams. So the eye is the thing that's not, I mean, the eye is working fine. Um, it's the uh, way that the information gets processed in the brain that is um, impaired. So um, eye gaze relies on the reflection from the eyeball so we can put high contrast things on in a communication device that uses eye gaze that would draw their attention to one icon over another and um, they would be able to use it. The other thing that we have that's been very useful, I'm glad you asked this because we've done this a couple of times uh, recently, is we've got an all-in-one computer screen. Um, and then we've got software on it that actually prints out what they call a heat map. And the heat map shows you everywhere the child's eyes went on the screen. And one exciting thing that happened, and it's fun cause and effect games. It's just they look at something and it falls down or blows up or turns into a flower or pops a bubble or just fun cause and effect things. And there's also some educational things too. But anyhow, you just kind of pick the activity depending on the child. And they're bright and colorful and high contrast as well. So one of the things that happened recently was um, the parents uh, said, oh, we know she has a right field neglect. And so we tried her on this, looked at the heat map later, and um, what we found was she has a quarter of her vision that she doesn't use, but she uses three-fourths of it. So the parent was so pleased with that finding because they realized that the child was using three-fourths of her vision, not one-half, so that they could work with her so, you know, in a much bigger capacity that, than they had in the past. So, they were very excited to see that finding. So, we're happy to do that with people, too. Also, the opposite has been true, where people were hoping there was more vision there, you know, more attending than actually showed up. Is that equipment eligible? Like what a, okay, let me rephrase that. 
I say at what age is that appropriate, but at what developmental age would that kind of equipment be ideal to consider? Oh, just even one year old. Could you say that again? Oh, even as young as probably one years old. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know that we've ever done it with anybody that small, but mm. um, probably two or three yeah, year old. Yeah, but I can see that it would work. Yeah. It's just fun things on the screen and and they interact with it. And that that is through eye gaze. So mm-hmm. that would make a difference in how you were doing therapy. So that is equipment we have in our resource center. It's also equipment we loan out. Um, so we would need you to come. We would have to train you how to use it um, before you were able to borrow it. But we do loan that out for two weeks. Okay. All right. So where, okay. And I know you've explained this to me in the past, but you had that lovely gentleman come speak several years ago when I first moved to South Carolina and he was in from Georgia and I believe he has since passed. Um, and he had the, like a micro trip on his glasses. Um, Oh, yes. Um, yes. Um, uh, Sam Creech uh, was his yeah. name. Yes, he had he passed yeah. away a year ago. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. It and was he, all. He was so funny. What he he was nonverbal. Um, he had a great job. Um, he was very well educated, and he, he did it. He did it all with yeah many degrees. Um, and he did it all with um uh, what he used a head mouse with his communication device. And so that, what you called a microchip was actually just a reflective dot. All that it was was shiny. There was no electronics in that dot. It, it was just reflective. Okay, well. And what that did was um, it moved, depending on how he moved his head, it moved the cursor around the screen. And that was using a, what's called a head mouse that has a USB plug and just plugs into either a computer. I worked with a little girl yesterday in the upstate where she used a head mouse and she was operating the whole computer independently. Um, but people who are nonverbal also use that kind of technology to access their um, um communication devices and that has no dependence on eye gaze um i mean you still have to look to see what's on the computer or what's on the communication device but it's not activated by eye gaze at all okay i just wanted clarification on the difference between those because that i i didn't What I remember is that sweet man going, hey, what you doing later? You want to grab dinner and a drink? Because I was like, I'm definitely married. (laughs) He made me laugh so hard. And I was pregnant. We're lucky I didn't pee when he was teasing me. But it was he was just so joyful. And when I first saw him moving, I didn't catch that that reflective dot. And so the light caught it when I was when I stood in front of him instead of next to him. I see. And that's when I caught the dot and it was my first time. I mean, I'm from, you know, Wadoak, Virginia. So it's not like I had a lot of exposure to this before I moved. So I just didn't understand the difference. Um, So thank you. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. So literacy. And that's one of our, our big ones. Where 
What are considerations for literacy when doing treatment sessions with a little one that has a cortical vision impairment? And I'm assuming probably not in that first stage when we're just trying to get them to attend to the light. But um, in that third stage when, you know, I would anticipate that being more appropriate, would it be more? Okay, here's what I want to know. Would it be better to put a black and white line drawing on there or would it be better to put the word on there? You can do both. You can do both. Um, And this is where I would definitely be using a flashlight to highlight Now we're talking about the picture and I'm shining the light on the picture. Now we're talking about the words and I'm shining the light on the word we're talking about. And also the repetition of having a repeating line in the book is very useful as well. Um, So you're, you know, constantly reinforcing the same um, core vocabulary, which is probably also what teachers call adult sight words. Um, Those overlap tremendously. So... We're probably working on both at the same time. So you can highlight, you can touch with a tapping finger. So you're adding movement to it or shine with a light and using high contrast. So um, that might be something you put together yourself um, or you can find a book and like highlight the more salient things. Like if their favorite color is red, you might draw a red box around the text on the page or draw um, just highlight it with red around the outside. Like if there's a tree in the middle of the page and the story's about what's going on with the tree, you would highlight by drawing around the tree. I'm, I'm just thinking when you're saying highlight, my, my next thought is, um, with the light, what about a red laser pointer? That's pretty small. Um, uh-huh. yes, it's, it's just a bad. small dot, uh, with a flashlight, you get more diffuse, a bigger area that's being lit up. It, it all depends on the situation. If you're w- working on a tiny area, um, maybe a lazy lighter, and especially if the child is attracted to red, a laser lighter um, light might be the way to go. But if the child's definitely drawn to yellow, or I worked with a child who was drawn to neon green, you know, you would je- definitely want to use a wide marker and um, draw neon green around the tree or yellow around the tree. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm just thinking, Christian has a, um, my husband, the Mr. Dawson, he has a sleep disorder left over from the army. And so when the boys went through their scary dream phases uh, and they wanted to sleep with flashlights, the flashlights are high powered, intense blue lights, typically. Well, I mean, he, obviously the tiny humans had to have tactical tech flashlights because I mean, clearly that's what a four year old He got uh, a red electrical tape and he put that, I mean, he, he's researched the daylights out of this. So he put red electrical tape over the surface of the flashlight. And so when they turned on, it was a warm red light instead. Um, like it wasn't that it took out some of that bright, bold blue. So when they woke up, it wasn't as intense as, um, and they could go back to sleep or, you know, quicker. So yeah. What an awesome idea. You could definitely do something like that too. I love that. I, I, I'm going to remember that. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you should have been there when we were nursing. We strung red Christmas lights across the back of the bed. And so when the baby woke up, I could breastfeed. He changed the butt, put that baby back in the bassinet and go right back to bed. And the red <laughs> sparkly twinkle light didn't wake us up out of the deep sleep cycle. There's definitely a pregnant mom listening going, that's brilliant. Also, <laughs> the amount of jokes you can make about working in the red light district. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but like, I mean, these are the things that you learn when you have a sleep disorder. Yeah, whatever works. Exactly. Well, yeah, but I'm just thinking about, you know, how to make that that red light and how to interconnect that one. Hmm. Okay. I like that idea. Of, and I would not have thought of a bright green highlighter. So that's delightful. It just depends on the child. And the kid. Yeah. And there's, is there, so how do you pick the color that works? You just watch them interact with their surroundings. Is it observance? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. You yeah, I I usually say, what's their favorite toy? That's a strong indicator. Or you can just put blocks of different colors. I, I will say th- that I like the neon colors seem to be what draw kids, you know, the really bright um, individual colors, whether, you know, like the neon green or the neon yellow, neon red, th- those kind of colors seem to do the best. Okay. Um, because we live in South Carolina, I had one little girl, um, and we picked up something was wrong by her selection and hair bow choices. Um, because you know, the bigger the bow, the closer to God is what one of the mothers told me one time. I was like, is that why bangs are so poofy down here? (laughs) She goes (laughs) something like that, honey. I was like, okay, be quiet now, Michelle. But, um, she always gravitated towards like, um, bright electric bold fuchsia pink bows. And, wow. Um, and she had a litany of other diagnoses and that's how we caught on that some, you know, that there was an underlying CBI issue. Oh my goodness. Oh, oh yeah. Pink. I'd have pink yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But I mean, and I mean, granted they just were absolutely precious, but hair bows. So, hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so what else, what, what else, if you had all of us listening, what would you tell us first and foremost, or, you know, final words of wisdom for this? Yeah. I mean, just what we were talking about, you know, really identifying the color. Um, Also patience, like you got to give these kids time to react. And during that time, we can't be talking to the mother. We can't be interacting with siblings. We've got to let it be quiet and give them all the time they can, they need to react. And then the other thing is just simplify, simplify, just, you know, clean, high contrast, um, the less information, the better. Um, So, and that would just, pretty much apply to whatever you're working on. I'm just, I'm just thinking when, you know, when we go in the homes and we go in the clinics and we go in like the early childhood special education classrooms, they're so busy. Everybody likes all the stuff on the walls and all the pictures on the walls. And I'm just thinking for an eval and a treatment session, how overwhelming and overstimulating that would be. Um, and just setting up a, a niche, a place or decluttering the place yes. that you're doing it in. Even. Yeah, that's hard to do in a classroom because some kids 
do well with all that information. Um, and then mm-hmm. other kids do not. It's really hard to set up a classroom that's going to be conducive to learning for everybody. Yeah. Hmm. What you and I could do if we ran the world. There Dr. you go. Carol, just saying. There you go. <laughs> oh. hmm. Okay. So if someone listening today has been inspired and had their heartstrings pulled like mine have basically been done every single time we talk, um, how would you recommend that they could support either the South Carolina Assistive Technology Program or for that matter, an assistive technology program somewhere in their state? Yes, um, because there is an assistive technology program in all the states and territories. Um, and um, just reach out. They have, uh, we all are required to do the same activities. So, um, you know, if you want to see a demonstration, if you want to just meet with me and um, find out more information, if you want to look at assistive technology, um, if you want to borrow devices, I'm I'm the one to get in touch with. So um hope you'll you know keep an open mind and uh take advantage of our resources. Uh we're located centrally here in Columbia, South Carolina. Um I also hear from people from other states and that's okay too. Um that's we we love to hear from people from other states. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, I love this. Thank you. Yay! And and y'all, don't forget, every March they have one fantastic expo and it's free to attend and you will earn ASHA CEUs and AOTA um, CEUs and um, South Carolina also offers early intervention continuing ed um, credits as well, um, like teacher certification stuff. So I uh, just kind of put that in the back of your mind. I know it's a few months out, but March, whoop, whoop, March 3rd, March. 2020, March 3rd, 2020. Yes. Okay. I will be there. Awesome. I'm looking nothing so that I can go. <laughs> put it on your calendar. <laughs> you joke, but it's like right there in front of me. Awesome. So if you okay. want to find out more about us, just Google South Carolina assistive technology program, or you can call me at 803-935-5301. I have a lovely public service announcement brought to you on behalf of feedingmatters.org. So if you too are passionate about facilitating change to improve the system of care for pediatric feeding disorders, then join Feeding Matters virtually on July 11th for the inaugural Pediatric Feeding Disorders Alliance Advocacy Town Hall, brought to you by Dr. PhD, Erin Ross, PhD, CCC, SLP, and she'll present strategic updates or initiatives igniting unprecedented changes for pediatric feeding disorders. For more information, visit bit.ly backslash pfdatownhalls.com. And that should take you right there. Thanks. See you soon. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through SpeechTherapyPD.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always,